Yeah, my microphone was off for that joke. There you go. Just for the joke. <laughs> yeah, I'll do it again. What's a Reddit? <laughs> can you can you uh, move your joke to before uh, Kyle's Kyle riff on your joke? I, I, yeah, I like, no, I can do all kinds I of magic. Kyle's riff. I can do all excellent, kinds of magic. excellent. Is this going to be the first the first use of a, a laugh track on Raptor Podcast, Jr.? Yeah, that's right. That's right. It's an artificial <laughs> laugh track. I'm just gonna. Uh, well, I, there's a lot of Kyle laughing, and it's like one of the best and most endearing things about the podcast. I think you could make a a Kyle laugh track that I could just like periodically just throw. But he does it himself, so I don't need to, yeah. to do it. So, so what could you do? Could you nicely. like? Could could you take? Could you do? All of the scenes of silence staring and then put together my laugh track and play them over, play the laugh yeah, track over the silence staring. That's what non- With occasional non- bursts I, yes, of me that's, swinging that's what non- from something and okay. flicking my microphone in ways that irritate you. <laughs> right. right. This is what out. non-Patreon subscribers get for an <laughs> hour. Fine, yeah. That's it. That's it. <laughs> That's right. That's, we're, we're just going to record. Um, only, like you will, it, you and if, if you pay one dollar, you get one person on the podcast. You only get that one the, person's track. You don't get to listen right. to everybody else. Two two dollars, you get two, three, God, four. The Ken five, only track is really like uh, Black Lodge level Patreon. <laughs> it's, it's terrible. Yeah, because uh, I won't edit. Yeah, I won't yeah, edit all, all the swinging noises and uh, bad breathing. <laughs> Yeah, for some people, I have to stop and say, "Oh, is is he laughing or just saying something there?" But if it's Ken, I'm just like silence, silence, Control L, just wipes it out because uh, I know it's it's you playing with your microphone. Okay, everybody, welcome back to Wrapped in Podcast. Uh, we will now begin episode 22 as we continue to talk about Twin Peaks, The Final Dossier by Mark Frost. This will be either the penultimate or final episode discussing this book, or maybe we'll continue to discuss this book for the next decade uh, as we continue to have technical problems as we try to record uh, on this particular topic. Okay, uh, Kyle, welcome back. How are you doing tonight? Uh, as I tell you at 8.38 a.m. once every year, I'm fine. It's rough. Uh, Ken, uh, how, are, how, are, how are things in San Francisco? Yeah, uh, things are good here. Thanks so much. I just met a lovely woman named Vivian, and she has some fantastic ideas about what I should do with my life and how I should spend my money. And uh, I'm just going to see where it goes. 
All right. And uh, Jeff, uh, how, how's it going? Uh, I'm inside the zone. <laughs> is it, it, is that, that, that means you're in a website that was created in 1997? I think so. <laughs> That's right. Think, think, On GeoCities. Yeah, things are... Lots of uh, lo- lots of little under construction sprites. Uh, yeah, kind of everywhere. I'm, it's just uh, just my head is here floating around, and lots under construction. So I got I got coordinates for major breaks, and this is where I've ended up. All right. Well, so uh, we're gonna keep going from where we left off in episode twenty one. Uh, now we're on to chapter nine, uh, filed under B for back in Twin Peaks. All right, so uh, Kyle, you want to start us out? Yeah, I, I will. I've, I said some critical things previously about this book, but this, uh, to me, is the most haunting, most convincingly authentic part of the book, and and really kudos to Mark Frost for the the eerily inventive way that he answered the lingering question, "How's Annie?" Love this part of the book. Absolutely loved it. Yeah, my favorite part by far, and I thought of you immediately, Kyle. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you. I, I do also want to mention that uh, John Bernardi at 25 Years Later made a strong case that Tammy's description of catatonic Annie seemed to apply equally as well to Dougie. And so uh, after the Gersten Hayward-Jerry Horn connection we noted previously, this marks at least the second instance in the final dossier of there being some sort of gender-bending doubling taking place. Yeah, I mean, this 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 uh, chapter is kind of a... The most interesting thing in this chapter, I think we can all agree, is Annie, who, of course, gets her own chapter later on. Um, which makes a lot of sense, uh, I guess, as much sense as calling the episode back in Twin Peaks. Yeah. Anything else to talk about this before we uh, move on to another important chapter of the yeah, book? Yeah, on the first page of uh, Back in Twin Peaks, there's there's this parenthetical uh, hints of a supernatural angle, supernatural in square in scare quotes. Sorry, hints of a supernatural angle creep in here, which I'm not inclined to credit, which is super strange. Like. This is Tammy. She's on the Blue Rose Task Force. She's seen a tulpa with her own right. eyes. She's been uh, witness to all kinds of magical events. Like the cynicism here, or, or maybe that's not the right word. The the uh, scullyism here that's is good. is a little hard to, to credit. Yeah, yeah. And then she was one of the whatever twenty two witnesses to you know uh, the the Bob Globule. You know, getting whatever resurrected all that i mean she yeah she'd seen things of a supernatural angle uh yeah it 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 seemed a little disingenuous this this uh parenthetical i agree ken yeah and wasn't she with cole and um albert at the opening of the zone where where you are right now jeff in in dakota um i'm looking out from the zone right now and i don't see tammy press there all i see is a squinting gordon cole but um i think gordon was like the one who he was the only one who i felt like who could see into the zone uh and i think uh, the the other other, they were right outside kind of the you know the zone periphery or whatever but But she was also around actually an invisible person killed uh matthew lillard in the back seat right right yeah, that's the thing. Tammy really didn't perceive any of that. From where she was standing, Gordon just looked like he was standing there with his arms up. And and then she, Diane saw the the woodsman come up, but but she didn't. But yeah, you're right. Something sure happened to his head. As Gordon noted, he's dead. Right, right. So, I mean, if it's not 
genuinely Tamara Preston's voice. It's a little your Frost is showing, and I think what Frost is doing is just being a little bit meta, right? Just winking at the audience that like, oh well, some things happen here that are that are not going to be uh, explainable by ordinary methods. Uh, and I feel like the note on Annie's chart may have been responding to auditory hallucination is somewhat in that same category, that it's like kind of a wink at some of the fugue state stuff going on in Lost Highway and in The Return. Uh, but maybe I'm reading too much into that. I don't know. Yeah. And this whole section, I don't know, it brought up for me, I mean, you know, the, the question of what happens to, I guess, an ordinary mortal when they go to one of the lodges, you know, and it, it seems like, as we saw with Dougie here, and as we see with Annie, the effects, the lingering effects are, are not very good at all. You know, and I, I kind of wonder if, you know, we hear a little bit, this mythology's all been kind of, you know, sketched out. And I still feel like the majority of what we know about the White and the Black Lodge comes from that one, you know, kind of monologue Hawk gives, you know, kind of like midway through season two, where he talks about the dweller at the threshold and so forth. But yeah, it seems like its effects are astonishingly damaging for most people who have traffic with it, you know. You either end up like Philip Jeffries or, uh, you know, uh, Dougie or <clears throat> Annie Blackburn saying, I'm fine at 8.38 a.m. every once a year. Yeah. One of the lingering surprises and, and disappointments, I guess, to me about the return was that Hawk never got to really elaborate on that stuff. He came so close to it when he was pointing at the map and discussing the symbols. Right. And then he and the show pulled back from it. We're entirely. not going to talk about that. Yeah. Right. Okay. Uh, we'll move on to Miss Twin Peaks. You know, th we, this, this is the infamous reference to President Donald Trump, uh, who is pointed out in contradistinction to authentic New York City billionaires in the book. Um, <clears throat> apparently, this was uh, one of, oh, sure. Uh, yeah, apparently, that was one of um, Lena Milford's uh, conquests. Uh, on <clears throat> the her path uh, after she left Twin Peaks, I just can't stop staring at the GIF. Can I pronounce it GIF? Yikes! That that Kyle posted uh, into the, uh, <laughs> into the the document. Jerry, all I was going to say about this, I was really on the fence about buying this book until I heard that it dealt with the lingering unresolved questions of the Miss Twin Peaks pageant. Uh, so that's <laughs> yes. that's what made that's me the put thing. the order in. Who won? That was really. I, I, I never. How were they able to resolve the dispute? Yeah, over the who deep would win source right? of my kind of dissatisfaction with Twin Peaks Return really is because the Miss Twin Peaks pageant was never mentioned or resolved. It's, but it's so strange, and I and I don't care, and they can't make me care. Lana Budding Milford is a great name, and I like saying it and reading it, but I do not care about her adventures, and I don't have much to say about this chapter other than what I've already said about how impossibly gross it is that this Frost as Tammy is as judgy and slut-shamey as he is. The last few sentences of the chapter are just vile. Like, Lana certainly had amassed enough bank by this point to call it a day, but, uh, ellipsis, the engine was still running, but the chassis needed an overhaul. As my mother used to say, trash is trash, even if it's in a Tiffany bag. That's the last sentence in this supposed FBI file about this individual. That's gross. I think it's because you, you, you're you upset that you're perfect notion of Tamara Preston is sullied uh, by the way she's writing here. Yeah, I just, I didn't realize lizard people were uh, capable of this much emotion, let alone in service of something so cruel. <laughs> yeah, well, how do, how do we think that uh, 
Lena ended up with an owl ring and what were the consequences that Donald Trump wore it at one time? Yeah, that's that's Frost just getting a dig in at the administration, which I'm all for. Yeah, but but I have to say, as as someone who loved the Richard Nixon having an owl ring connection, um, I, I'm I'm troubled that it's sullied by you know being with 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 Donald Trump, and um, it, it it does make it interesting though to try and trace who had the owl ring at various points. I mean, I, I don't know that I could put that timeline together, but I think it would be interesting if it could be done. I still think there's more than one of these rings floating around, but it also is interesting. It seems like. Uh, you know, Lana, I guess, got this from Doug Milford, who had it in his possession, you know, uh, right. and would he have gotten it? I, I, I want to say, like, at this point in the timeline, would we not have, I guess, Nixon had it. And then do we skip to, like, the Teresa Banks, you know, um, and I guess Laura in whatever, you know, the, the kind of fire walk with me era, we see the Owl Cave ring and it has importance there. And then I guess it shows up a couple of years later with. Doug Milford, and then he gives it to Lana, and then she passes it on to uh, Donald Trump, who's wearing the ring. And then, as they note here, you know, you guys, what happened? You know, it, more often than not, the appearance of the ring presages impending peril, misfortune, or untimely death. <laughs> yeah, but there's also there's also the rise before the fall. I mean, yeah, the you know right, the implication right. is that that it led you know Nixon to great heights and then to great depths, and and particularly knowing what we know of false politics, obviously that's I think that's the dig he's trying to get yeah. in. But how it fits into the larger mythology, if it does, I don't know. Yeah, it would be cool, I guess, slightly cool, a little more cool, if we got all the Miss Twin Peaks stuff and the Lana Milford stuff because Frost had this idea in mind that he wanted to get the owl ring from Nixon to uh, to Trump. That he just really wanted to work another Republican president uh, headed for a fall into his uh, narrative. And so he's like, well, what's the best way to do that? Well, I've got this socialite that I can create from this gold digger character in season two, uh, I guess. I guess that's slightly cooler, if that's the only reason these chapters exist. Yeah. Shall we move on to chapter 11, Dr. Lawrence Jacoby? Yeah, that's much more interesting. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I actually don't have much to say about this chapter uh, other than uh, it's, it's kind of hilarious that for some reason, James' story is told at a, as a postscript, which makes <laughs> zero sense whatsoever. Right. I mean, why? I, I, I get putting, putting, putting James, not giving him his own chapter, given that several people you know have got three or four chapters that are about them. But uh, why Jacoby? Because this way, it's st- the file is filed under J for James. That's right. Right. Nervous about <laughs> filing J tonight. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> the secret diary of Tamara Preston. Right. <laughs> I'm I'm legitimately trying to find the connection, and I don't know if I can actually find it. Like the the connection between well, James wh- Hurley and Jacoby. While we are talking about James Hurley, though, I, I, I will have a lot more on Dr. Jacoby later, but there is an interesting aside in this chapter about the the Noir James uh, storyline from season two. And there's a, there's a line on page 88 that says, 
Evelyn Marsh and the paramour who had been posing as his brother. Now, that, of course, is a reference to Malcolm Sloan, who was posing as her brother. Uh, so we've got, we've got an, an incorrect gender, in, uh, incorrect pronoun here. So now we have Gersten and Jerry sharing a really random and very precise biographical detail. We've got Annie as an analog for Dougie. And now we have the distinctly female Evelyn Marsh being referred to with the male pronoun. Now we have a pattern of gender switching in the character doubling and reality blurring in this book, which I think is important. Yeah. Isn't there a shot across the bow at the terrible James Noir plotline too? Doesn't Tammy refer to it as the less said, the better or whatever, in a, in a nod to how much viewers hated that. Yeah, she says, not, not long afterwards, after being taken in by a predatory older woman outside Portland, Oregon, James stumbled into the role of hapless Patsy in a murder scheme straight out of noted noir novelist James M. Kane. Then parentheses, I won't bore you with the details. Uh, so, that's it. I won't bore you with the details yeah. is, the, is, the, is the rye aside. But there's James M. Kane again, Leland Stanford. And and Cain, as as in you know Cain and Abel, yeah. so you know we're back to the Bible again. Yeah, Kyle, back to your gender switching theory. Where does Denise Bryson fit into it? Well, I, I mean, I obviously you know we we got a very clear message from from Gordon with the fix your hearts or die part, but um, I have a grand Tammy theory at the end that that will will tie up my thoughts on this. Nice. Okay, great. I got a couple of things. I just wanted to praise this this chapter. I thought it was hilarious and a lot of fun and kind of like this sort of pastiche of, you know, all these countercultural, you know, kind of like ideas from like the 60s, like through, you know, it, it, he, he was kind of became this like zealot of Jacoby of like the international counterculture, you know, and he sort of, you know, it, <laughs> uh, is involved with, uh, you know, Amsterdam and head shops and this whole thing kind of read like a Thomas Pynchon novel. Uh, and it was great. Yeah. I, I just really, really enjoyed this. And Frost was kind of definitely indulging himself here, but I thought it was one of the most fun, you know, kind of uh, uh, chapters to read this, this like, you know, I like Jacoby, his transformation into Dr. Amp. Uh, it was, it was, it was a lot of fun. Yeah. These aging hippies are closest to Frost's heart. Jacoby and, and Jerry Horn. Very and, much so. Uh, yeah. yeah, he Very clearly so. is having the most fun in those sections. Uh, if it were a Pynchon novel, Jeff, which one would it be? Which one does it seem closest to? Inherent Vice, probably. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Yeah. So I, that or The Crying of Lot 49. Yeah, one of the one of yeah one of those those or or even kind of like uh, Vineland, you know what I mean? That seems like you know kind yeah, of what happened yeah. to a lot of those people in the eighties into the nineties. I mean, that was it, it. Seems like that was his Jacoby's kind of wilderness period too. But yeah, it, it was it was great, and also I, I was happy that you know a lot of our you know we discussed alchemy a number of times uh, this summer, talking about the return and. It's actually explicitly, you know, uh, identified here, talking about the golden shovel and interpersonal alchemy, turning the lead of dull everyday consciousness into the gold of an evolved human soul. And then uh, Jacoby himself is also compared to the magus, you know, uh, the, the tarot card, the, the ancient archetype of a magician. Yeah. Uh, and I, I kind of thought there, they compare, you know, Jacoby to like Prospero, you know, from The Tempest. And I kind of almost felt like in a weird way, you know, he describes Jacoby as a man who lives at one with nature and its pagan spirits, whose developed senses can now pierce the veil of existence and leave him able and willing to share the wisdom one minds from such hard-earned territory. I almost felt like he's on some level 
whether consciously or not talking about, you know, his, uh, his, his partner, David Lynch too, uh, in this, uh, portrait of Jacoby. Yeah. I love that. And I love the intrapersonal alchemy and the tarot's magus. Those are just fun things to say, uh, and, and think they remind me that passage that you just read reminds me of a run on Warlock that Jim Starlin did. That's pretty famous. I think I might've mentioned it on a previous edition of the podcast, but, um, it's, it's been recently collected. I think it's just collected as the complete Warlock. Uh, and it's really brilliant. And apparently Starlin wrote and, and drew it. Uh, in lieu of committing suicide, he was thinking about committing suicide, but he wrote these very, very introspective, dark uh, superhero cosmic comic books instead. And there's a character called the Magus. And this notion of being able to pierce through the veil of reality is uh, very much what Warlock, an artificial being who looks as though he is made of gold. So the the alchemy thing fits right into it, too, uh, is going through in that. So all of that was brought up for me by uh, by Jacoby's journey. So. Hey, you know, Jeff, you mentioned Vineland, uh, which takes place largely in Anderson Valley in California, which is not far from Ukiah, which is where Mark Frost lives. Yeah. Uh, So he's, I'm sure he's steeped in all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. They probably hang out. He's like the one person that hangs out with Thomas Pynchon. Probably so. Or Cyril Pons hangs out with him. That's it. That (laughs) seems like it would be exhausting. Yeah. I think it'd be a lot of fun. To hang out with Thomas Pynchon? Oh my god, that would be great fun. Do you think that would be exhausting, Ken? I would. Yeah, yeah I do. I oh, do. I think it'd be a lot of fun. Except that he'd run away as soon as he saw you. That's the problem. Okay. Um, anything more on Jacoby? I, I liked it a lot. I basically agree with everything Jeff said. Although I do think, in addition to Thomas Pynchon, I think there's also like a Robert Anton Wilson quality to Jacoby's narrative as well. Pulling the cosmic trigger. Yeah, I could see him. <laughs> uh, Wandering around in the Illuminatus trilogy somewhere. Okay, Margaret Coulson. I just want to say that you know, I I think this was intentional. Uh, Frost said it was intentional. It's not a misprint. Uh, but it, uh, Kyle, or I mean Ken, I mean Jeff. <laughs> what 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 are your thoughts on on her sort of poem here, or her? I guess it's more of a... Well, wait, we should explain what, what you're saying is intentional. So, this it's not Margaret Lanterman, the log lady, it's Margaret Coulson. So, they've they've taken the first name of the character and given it the last name of the actress. And I thought this was a very understanding and understandable and sort of touching error. But you're saying, JR, that uh, that they intentionally decided to make the maiden name of the character uh, the same as the last name of the actress in tribute. Yeah, I think it... If I'm not mistaken, I think in the secret history of Twin Peaks, uh, there's like the Twin Peaks Gazette or whatever. I can't remember which which newspaper it is at that uh, iteration. But when they give the account of the three children who disappeared in the woods um, in like the 50s, uh, I believe she's referred to as Margaret Coulson there, too. Uh, so I think, it, yeah, but I, I and then I think in the uh, AMA that Mark Frost did. Uh, on Reddit, he said also that this was a you know intentional tribute to Catherine Coulson, the actress who played the log lady. So yeah, but I first I thought it yeah uh, that's cool yeah. At first I thought it was a mistake too, but it was it was apparently intentional. And actually, I'm, I was wrong. Uh, Kyle, you're the one with thoughts on the funeral ode. I don't know how well, to read. 
That's okay. Um, yeah, the the funeral letter there on page ninety four kind of read to me as both an endorsement and an indictment of Cooper's actions in parts seventeen and eighteen. On the one hand, she recommends that we seek out those who need us and do what we can for them, but she also encourages us to accept and make our peace with the reality that darkness comes with the light. And and perhaps the lesson really comes down to what she says in the in the middle of this passage, where she says, "We are born into this world." not another one. It's not perfect, but it is what it is. And and I think this goes back to what Ken talked about in our postseason wrap-up, that Coop's efforts to help have been doomed by his inability to accept the imperfections of the world as it is and his insistence on trying to make it into a world not our own. And he keeps being led down these paths to places he doesn't really belong. Yeah, it's it's amazing. And I, I'm glad you saw that parallel, Kyle. I read that piece of the of the poem and I got like goosebumps because it seemed so similar to the point I was trying less poetically to make in our in our last episode about the season about how you know what do you what do you do in the face of the fact that evil is always there what do you do if you're the evolved version of of cooper and you know you keep trying it's never enough but there's honor in the trying and i read that and i thought boy this this letter does what i was trying to do with that fumbly wrap-up so much better that it that it actually gave me chills so yeah I felt like Frost was was speaking directly to me. Yeah, and this it's it's interesting. I mean, this is a, yeah, it's a beautiful, you know, uh, I don't know what we call it, <laughs> self eulogy, you know, by uh, the Log Lady, uh, you know, here. And I always associate the Log Lady kind of as a, a character so much with David Lynch, I guess, because Catherine Coulson, you know, is one of the kind of original you know, collaborators with Lynch who'd been with him since the seventies, right. and because of the Log Lady. You know, intros, which I think Lynch, uh, you know, the ones that were on Bravo, you know, in the 90s when the show was first rebroadcast, that Lynch was so involved in that. Almost like I felt like that's some of, even though it's in this very abstract, oblique, you know, kind of like poetic language, it still gives us a guide to how to, I think, read the series in a Lynchian way. But I, I, like I said, and I think I associate her so much with Lynch for those reasons. And I guess I was... Uh, you know, probably unfairly to Frost, as so often happens, assume Lynch was involved in, you know, writing the, the you know, the um, monologues, the phone conversations that she had, which are kind of like, you know, I guess the the, the closest to the the heart of the, the show, at least the emotional heart of the show in lots of ways of, of, of season three. But here, I mean, you know, this is a Frost solo act. This is a beautiful, beautiful passage that she wrote in you know, Margaret Coulson, Lanterman's voice. And uh, yeah, I, I was, it, it was great. It was really beautiful writing. It made me feel like, like I said, it so often happens, we're probably not giving Frost enough credit for uh, some of the, the really amazing writing in uh, the new season. Yeah, and we've taken little pot shots at his writing style and the ways in which some of the conceits of the book don't work. But it's worth reiterating not just that we all really enjoyed the book and tore through it and it's fun as fan service, but that Frost can really compose a sentence you know like he's he's a hell of a of a wordsmith when he wants to be he's he's not you know uh some some newbie at this he's he's a legit good writer and this this chapter is probably the best example of that for me he's actually written some novels like like young adult science fiction novels i think uh along with some other stuff i've not read any of it i i would like to check it out i should see if it's at my local library i read the list of seven in like 1995 or something like that, which I think was his first novel, like after, which was a lot of fun. I mean, you know, it, it was, it's, it was, it was a very fun read. 
Well, Kyle, he's haven't you read some of his, writer. Yeah, yeah, that's what yeah. I was going to say. Yeah. Uh, that's it. That he's he's a sports writer of of some note, and and did at you know at, at for at fear of of Ken mocking the phrase impregnable quadrilateral, uh, <laughs> I, I will mention that he um, he did write a book on on Bobby Jones and the uh, uh, winning the Grand Slam. So I mean, yeah, he's 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 good as a fiction and nonfiction writer, both for television and in prose. So there you go, Mark. We've said nice things. We uh, we don't we don't mean all the b- bad stuff. We're going to be mean some more now. Obviously the. The, I think the the next chapter, if we're done with with Margaret, rest in peace. Goodbye, Margaret. Is about uh, Sheriff Harry Truman, and I was just this is like I think maybe the shortest chapter in the whole book. Yeah, I think so. uh, and we find out really nothing uh, about him. I, I thought. Yeah, uh, I mean, Kyle, you had a point about when this is being written. Yeah, th- this was one of the sort of conceits of the book not really holding up because you've got Tammy writing a note to Gordon encouraging him to reach out to to Harry and that would be touching if the return hadn't made it clear that Harry was in bad shape in October of 2016 and she's writing this advice to Gordon in September of 2017 at a point when it's probably too late and so it's just it would be touching if it made any narrative logical sense otherwise it just seems weird. Yeah, I don't know. Give up? I wouldn't give up on Harry. I think he's a fighter. We don't know. Maybe he had a turn for the better. Of course, they don't say one way or the other. Uh, I guess, you know, normally if you are in Twin Peaks and decide not to come back to it, um, if you commit repeated acts of defamation per se against David Lynch, you'll be turned into a uh, brain tree, electric brain tree. <laughs> uh, if you don't... Um, <clears throat> if you don't come back and, and you're, you're cast for somebody else... Uh, in the movie, then Mark Frost will uh, weirdly compare you to Kathy Ireland. Um, but I, in this case, <laughs> since since Lynch was able to get the actor that he originally wanted to play Harry Truman to play Harry Truman's brother, uh, Harry just gets cancer, and um, yeah. because the, the the actor just didn't for whatever reason we don't really understand he, he's retired is the answer to why he didn't come back to the show. Uh, but maybe they're leaving out the possibility that he might change his mind and come back. And so they don't plant a foot in this book. I don't know. And I was just going to say, you know, kind of this marks sort of a turning point in the book. You know, I think we mentioned it last episode, but really from this point, you know, this is sort of the last chapter. I feel like kind of devoted to this pretty thoroughgoing attempt to address or try to tie up most the loose end, the loose ends in the narrative mostly left over from the second half of season two, even as we said down to like a minutia, like the restaurant critic at the double R, the James Hurley noir subplot. Uh, but from here on out, we look more closely at the events of uh, season three uh, and the, the remaining chapters in the books. This seemed kind of like the clearest dividing point that I saw in, uh, in uh, the final dossier. Yeah, I think, Jeff, you noted that at this point in the book, we're roughly two-thirds of the way through it. Uh, I'm not sure that we're two-thirds of the way through our podcasts about this book. Uh, <laughs> I guess we'll find out. There's a lot of material. Uh, a series of podcasts pages. about the, It's weird, yeah. though. Like, like the, I guess we weren't doing the podcast when the Secret History came out. I can only imagine. Like, we, we would have to podcast about that for like a year. If we yes, to we've had like a twelve-part Jack Parsons, you know, uh, alone. <laughs> yeah, no. We, what we would what we would do is we would actually summon Jack Parsons to be on the podcast. Um, 
Jack Parsons and Meriwether Lewis roundtable, something like that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, as it is, I'm just really glad the secret history exists and was out there for us to seed into our understanding of the return and and the podcast about it. You know, it's just really nice um, reference material. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, it was great. Okay, we're going to let's turn now to Major Briggs. Um, Jeff, you have got or I'm sorry, Kyle, you've got a lot of thoughts here. I've got some Dugpa stuff I want to cover. Um, so let's go ahead. I'll let you run okay. with it, Kyle. All right. Uh, and with, so that this will not go on forever and, and uh, your, your two-thirds of the way done point is well taken, uh, I'll just say that there are some continuity problems with this chapter and leave it at that. But I do think it reveals something that's, that's crucial. On page 111, Tammy confesses that her presumption had been that this figure is allegorical, a metaphor for a struggle that takes us, play, uh, takes us place in the realm of the inter- intrapersonal and psychological. And, of course, the log lady's already told us on page 94 that what others may decide to see as a metaphor was actually fact. So if we should be looking for the factual amid the metaphorical, the intrapersonal, and the psychological, we should look to Dr. Lawrence Jacoby, who advocates, as, as has already been mentioned, a process of intrapersonal alchemy on page 85, um, using an at-first metaphorical tool. Um, you know, we've got the Zonderkop Institute. Its name alludes to the decapitated Major Briggs and Ruth Davenport. We got the French census of Holland explaining the strange surnames of Dutchmen, as in the Dutchmans. Uh, the strange Dutch name of the Institute's founder means Dr. Little Poops, which naturally makes us think of the big poops out of which Dr. Jacoby hopes to guide his followers. So we've got this character who led Sarah Palmer to the double R to bring a message from Agent Cooper in the Black Lodge to Major Briggs in between his trips to the White Lodge. Dr. Jacoby's the one who designed the multicolored glasses that restore the disrupted balance between countervailing forces of nature. Dr. Jacoby broadcasts from high up on the mountain where Major Briggs once received signals, and he's the one who rants out between two worlds. The first thing we saw in part one after Cooper's conversation with the fireman was Dr. Jacoby emerging from a doorway as a literal dweller on the threshold. He was taking delivery of a shipment of shovels, and we couldn't understand what was being said in that scene any more than we could understand what had been said in the White Lodge in the previous scene. So I think Dr. Jacoby is the key to breaking Cooper and Laura free from their loop. They need a shovel. They need a solid gold alchemical shovel to dig themselves out of the interdimensional shit. And in this show that is so filled with the sizzling symbolism of ominous power poles, crackling electrical lines, interdimensional outlets, flickering lights, and electricity, of course, the guy who knows the way out is Dr. Amp. That was great. Yeah. Yeah. And this is in this, uh, in this chapter, uh, we get a reference to Tammy refers to what what Helena Blavatsky called the the Brotherhood of the Shadow, and I poured through some books that I have about Theosophy uh, by Blavatsky where she talks about this, and uh, it, it it may be a little bit long, but I'm, I'm can can you, you all want to indulge me and let me read these passages because I did. Some of them are, I think, are really interesting. And the, in terms of the term Dugpa, which isn't actually in this book, it, I don't know that it even appears anywhere in the return. Uh, it's, it's a word that was used by Wyndham Earl 
to describe what he was looking for. And there's one scene where Briggs plays a videotape of uh, Wyndham Earl ranting about sorcerers and Dugpas who are, you know, ha- have access to special powers. Um, in the history of Tibetan Buddhism, the Dugpas were a branch of the Tibetan Buddhist tradition who were uh, not of the, what ended up being kind of the prevailing branch. Uh, and I've forgotten the names of the different branches, which I would butcher when I try to pronounce them. But the prevailing branch uh, wore yellow hats, but the Dugpas wore red hats. And they were, uh, they had more influence in their religious practices from the indigenous religion of Tibet, which uh, I think was called Bone, uh, which was a sort of primeval animalistic kind of religion that preceded Buddhism. And the Dagpas were more informed by that uh, than other branches of Tibetan Buddhism, which had thrown them off. Um, so the first thing I want to to read is from a book called The Key to Theosophy, uh, which is written in a, in a kind of annoying dialogue where there's like somebody asking questions and then the theosophist a- answers the question. So there's one passage that begins, the question is, tell me, have the adepts thus inspired or dictated uh, to many of your theosophists? And the theosophist responds, no, on the contrary, very few. Such operations require special conditions. An unscrupulous but skilled adept of the Black Brotherhood, brotherhoods, brothers of the shadow and Dugpas, we call them, has far less difficulties to labor under. For having no laws of the spiritual kind to trammel his actions, such a Dugpa sorcerer will most unceremoniously obtain control over any mind and subject it entirely to his evil powers. But our masters will never do that. They have no right, except by falling into black magic, to obtain full mastery over anyone's immortal ego, and can therefore act only on the physical and psychic nature of the subject, leaving thereby the free will of the latter wholly undisturbed. Hence, unless a person has been brought into psychic relationship with the masters and is associated by virtue of his full faith in and devotion to his teachers, the latter, whenever transmitting their thoughts to one with whom these conditions are not fulfilled, experience great difficulties in penetrating into the cloudy chaos of that person's sphere. But this is no place to treat of a subject of this nature. Suffice it to say that if the power exists, then there are intelligences embodied or disembodied, which guide this power and living conscious instruments through whom it is transmitted and by whom it is received. We only have to beware of black magic. And then they ask, what do you really mean by black magic? Simply abuse of psychic powers of, or of any secret of nature. The fact of applying to selfish and sinful ends, the powers of occultism. A hypnot- and so this is interesting because uh, Dr. Jacoby from the previous chapter was a big fan of hypnosis. A hypnotizer who, taking advantage of his powers of suggestion, forces a subject to steal or murder would be called a black magician by us. But yeah, this, this whole notion of the brotherhood of the shadow, I think, is, is significant in terms of trying to understand who Bob is, uh, who's what's going on in the black lodge. What's the difference between Bob and Mr. C uh, what is Mr. C as a, as a dweller on the shadow. Um, I, I, there's more to some of those questions in the rest of Blavatsky's work, but I'll probably just take pictures of the pages and post them on the website at some point. Yeah. And that, I mean, that ties in too with, I think some of the most interesting stuff in this chapter is near the end of it where Tammy starts to kind of ask a lot of questions and speculate about, you know, what the, what she calls Mr. C 
you know, Doppelcooper the double uh, in this uh, chapter, but she's, you know, speculating what the double actually was after and why he was so obsessed with these coordinates and built this insane crime syndicate to basically get entrance in somewhere. And she says that, you know, she talks about the portals and then says that I thought it was interesting. You know, she talks about this, the portals and says it's like a subway stop into some sort of mysterious network or web that could be accessed from many different places. And then says, what if the double is looking for the most important location in this alleged system, a grand central station, if you will, on the other side. And then if he made it there, you know, what kind of power was he after? And I still, this is still, you know, kind of unclear even after 18 hours, but then she starts speculating about the very existence of the double and identifies him as possibly, you know, the dweller on the threshold, uh, you know, or as a tulpa or possibly as possessed. And I think, you know, two, two, two of the three of those are, are, are probably true. Uh, but yeah, it, it, it was interesting. And, you know, thanks all that information you gave us to, uh, JR ties into, uh, what Tammy's talking about at the end of this chapter. There's one more thing I wanted to read, and this is from the veil of ISIS. Uh, this is just a couple sentences uh, where she says, this class of spirits are called the terrestrial or earthly elementary in contradistinction to the other classes in the East. They are known as the brothers of the shadow, cunning, low, vindictive, and seeking to retaliate, retaliate their sufferings upon humanity they become, until final annihilation, vampires, ghouls, and prominent actors. Yeah, uh, I, 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 there's, there's a Kevin, there's a Kevin Spacey joke there. This, uh, there are there are the leading these are the leading stars in the great spiritual stage of materialization, which phenomena they perform with the help of the more intelligent or the genuine born elemental creatures, which hover around and welcome them with delight in their own spheres. Wow. This seems like one of those those things too, where I, I can you know in my my speculation about the intrapersonal alchemy of Frost and Lynch, I can imagine you know Frost telling Lynch about this Blavatsky stuff and the Brothers of the Shadow, and then Lynch translating it into the the creation of the Woodsman. <laughs> you know, like yeah. it sort of seems like one of you know one of those things where Frost has this kind of like you know occult, uh, weird spiritual you know kind of like esoteric knowledge, and then you know, maybe, I don't know, almost feeds Lynch these ideas or mentions them. And then Lynch translates them into these bizarre, you know, dream, you know, visual dreamlike forms. So, yeah. The other thing that I noted about this book or, or this particular chapter and uh, kind of tying back to some of the ideas that, that Kyle had bringing things to Dr. Amp. Um, the, the Zonderkamp group was founded in 1981 which is a fairly hot period of the Cold War, that that was a, a group that Jacoby was associated with, was de- dedicated to, quote, finding alternative ways of raising human consciousness and fast before we blow all this shit up, uh, which certainly made me think of uh, Chapter 8. Yeah. Of The Return. Right. So are we going to talk about Philip Jeffries? We're not going to talk about Philip Jeffries. We're, we're not going to talk about that at all. <laughs> we're not going to <laughs> I mean, it's almost exactly the same length as the Harry Truman chapter. There isn't much of it there at all. Yeah, no, they're they're leaving uh, Philip behind the veil or in his tea kettle. Yeah, I mean, there's, I, there's almost nothing here. I nominate Kyle to read a paragraph from it in his impression, in his voice that is an impression of the guy doing an impression of Bowie from the tea kettle scene. 
but other than I, that, I appreciate no. that, but I, uh, I think I'm, I think I'm talking enough on this. I mean, one. this was, it's another one of those weird chapters where it's called Philip Jeffries, but we get more information about Philip Jeffries, like in the like two or three chapters that follow kind of the same way that happened with like right. Shelley Johnson, a couple of the er- er- earlier chapters where it just goes over a lot of stuff we already know about, you know, Philip Jeffries. And then the interesting stuff shows up a few chapters later. So, yeah. Well, if you want to know about Philip Jeffries, you have to look under J for Judy. See, it's it's all very sensible. <laughs> J for Judy, J for Jeffries, J for Jacoby. It's all filed under J. Kyle, I want you to read a sentence from this as Tamara Preston pretending oh, to gosh. be the guy pretending to be David Bowie pretending <laughs> to have a southern accent. Or look, or, or as Mark Frost as Cyril Pons pretending to be Tamara Preston <laughs> pretending to be. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Can I just say something horrible about Gene Kelly and move on? <laughs> Not on this podcast. Okay. All right. So, All right. so Judy, chapter 16. Yeah, I, I will say this, that, that Tammy apparently, and again, I know they're deliberate anachronisms, but Tammy apparently thinks that she discovered Judy was Jow Day in 2017, which is the year after Gordon told Tammy that for the last 25 plus years, he and Jeffries and Cooper and Briggs have been carrying out an elaborate plan to catch Jow Day, who he carefully explained was Judy. So I, I just, again, it's got to be deliberate because otherwise it's just too glaring an error. Or calling it deliberate is just a lazy way of finding an excuse for the fact that you never checked it. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully I mean, not. We, I think we talked, the, the Judy chapter has uh, this stuff about uh, Utaku from uh, Sumerian mythology. And I think we talked in a previous episode about a lazy sort of tendency to just throw things in as Sumerian um, or throw Sumerian mythology into things, maybe among like ancient astronaut theorists, as one of my favorite television programs would call them. But uh, there is some cool resonance with with Utaku. Uh, they are meant to be siblings of the Anunnaki, uh, who are the ancient astronaut community uh, as as a ancient rendering of sky gods and, and alien beings. Um, it's a, it's a particularly fertile moment for the ancient astronaut theory movement, since the New York times has just told us that aliens are real and that alien alloys are sitting in uh, um, warehouses somewhere affecting the health of people who touch them. I heard a guy being interviewed about it on NPR this morning. So uh, my my dumb fringe conspiracy program has gone more mainstream in just the weeks since this book came out than it probably ever has been. Uh, but yeah, the Anunnaki stuff is really, really big in that community. And maybe the one time that show actually gave me chills and made me think maybe there is something to all of this is when they revealed that the ancient word for ant people, that the hope Hopi Indians uh, use the the Hopi people of uh, southwestern what is now the United States uh, that they treated as their gods and teachers and people that had discovered things about how to live on Earth and hunt and whatever else their basic alien god figures were called ant people and their word for ant person was anu naki ant person which is the same word as in ancient sumerian mesopotamian i just thought that was like super cool i'm sure it's just a coincidence but that was the one thing where i was like whoa anyway they're cousins what was their word uh, for <laughs> right. frog Utaku, bug. clearly 
I, I have you guys ever consider? I mean, considered that okay, there was at some point that I'm not. We're not going to talk about Judy at all. Thing, you know, I think that's probably the Bowie line. They couldn't do anything with in terms of like you couldn't remove it without. I, I guess disturbing the continuity of the fire walk with me sequence. And then Bowie passed away. And I still, I mean, it's an astounding retcon. I don't think anyone had any idea what the hell Judy was when they wrote the script yeah. in like 1991. Right. And they've spun right. this insane, you know, and, and it, when, when is, when is Judy actually mentioned like episode 16 of, of season three, you know, and then all of a sudden it like yeah. changes the game entirely. And then we get this, you know, Jow Day, J-O-U-D-Y, I think, uh, doesn't show up, I believe, anywhere in a, in a Google search except in pointing you directly back to Twin Peaks, the final dossier, and Mark Frost. So, I mean, I'll give them credit. You know what I mean? I think it was just a line they couldn't do anything with uh, that had to, uh, you know, be preserved, you know, if they're going to use Bowie's uh, bit in Firewalk with me. But we get Judy and we're all talking about Judy and it, you know, kind of, it, it, it changed the game entirely, but I still thought it was, was fascinating that I still think it was just a bit of dialogue. They didn't have anything else to do with. It's crazy. Cause there's, there's almost this contradictory influence between Firewalk with me and the return. Uh, on the one hand, you've got this Judy stuff, which is, you know, certainly didn't seem to be a big deal or the deal that it was in the movie that it was in the return. Uh, and you've also got an ending to Firewalk with me that is very, very hard to square with, I think personally, with anything that we see in the return. Right. Um, but at the same time, uh, so many of the seeds of the return, uh, we, we suspect, uh, came from Lynch putting together, uh, the missing pieces from that movie. Uh, so it, yeah, it's, it's, it's very, yeah. It's a very complicated relationship. And The Return makes an effort to engage directly with Firewalk With Me quite frequently, including in, in the very last episode where it kind of kind of right. rewrites it. But, you know, I always think of Firewalk With Me as the piece of all of this that deals the most with the human cost of these relationships and suffering and what Leland did to Laura. That it's it really is a story about human suffering. Um, and I know that we we already knew the mythological stuff from the original series, but it's it's the place that really it's the movie that really grounds all of that stuff in one teenage girl's lived experience. So I, it, it feels like the polar opposite of the return in that way, where where the return is really metaphysical and and bizarre and meandering. Given the Babylonian or Sum- I guess the Sumerian connection, I uh, never mind. Was, I'll, I'll cut it out. I was going to suggest there's a connection between Twin Peaks and Ghostbusters, but <laughs> yeah, and I, I don't know. I, I've I I guess the question of kind of continuity and what's canon. Uh, it does seem on some level, one of the purposes of what Lynch was up to, and I might have more to say about this later on in the return, just in terms of his, you know, uh, the way he edited the thing and the way he kind of put it together is on some level to just say, screw you to that stuff. And like the same way that he kind of did, I think with the end of season two and with fire walk with me and with the return on some level, I guess these kind of, what so much of like internet fan culture is it, it's weird how, you know, on some level, of course, something like Twin Peaks or Return 
is perfectly suited to what we're doing right now or to, you know, subreddits and like internet, you know, like fan board, you know, discussion boards and so forth. But on the other hand, it just kind of makes it obsolete, you know, and it, it kind of like plays, you know, fast and loose with these things kind of in, you know, uh, as it needs to, uh, as it seems like as Lynch responds to the creative moment and the kind of spontaneous improvised creative moment when he's actually filming this. Uh, so it's, yeah, it, it bears a fascinating relationship to these things. And, you know, it, it, it seems like even Frost in this book, he fall, you know, ties up a lot of loose ends, but then there are other ones that don't quite square. And then we introduce the alternate timelines and yeah, it's a, it's, it's, it's a slippery business. It's slippery <laughs> down there. Yeah. It, it is interesting to see Lynch and Frost produce art. I, I agree with you, Jeff, in this landscape where you have what's the old Patton Oswalt uh, phrase, like everybody's otaku about something, right? Like there are all these super fans. There's there's a million of us. There's a, there's a huge podcast landscape out there and Redditors and subreddits and, and this whole thing. And uh, I'm sure Lynch is actively uh, against all of that if he cares about it at all, but uh it's it's a fascinating world to produce art in and very different from 1989 what's a reddit <laughs> right right. <laughs> <laughs> right i told you the secret history <laughs> i haven't read it uh so we're nearing an hour on the track should we do whatever little bit we have in ray monroe and then make the next one final thoughts yeah actually yeah let's all right so so yeah. we will, this concludes episode 22 of Wrapped in Podcast. Thanks for joining us. Stay tuned for episode 23 of Wrapped in Podcast, which will continue to address Mark Frost's The Final Dossier.
新。